Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we have a special show. It's basically me. Uh, I'm doing a talk called Playing Through Fire, Athletes in an Age of Reaction, where I talk about what it means to be an athlete during this particular political moment. I hope you listen to it. I hope you dig it. And this talk was given at the conference Socialism 2022. If you want to see some of the other talks that went down that weekend, it was really inspiring, actually. Uh, go to wearemany.org. But for now, here's me at Socialism 2022 talking about playing through fire, athletes in a time of reaction. Hello, conference. And... First and foremost, before I say anything, I want to give a shout out to everybody out in Zoom land. We have hundreds of people who've been through the Zoom experience this weekend. Give a special shout out to Bill Keach and Sheila Emerson, my sister Annie Zirin, who are watching on Zoom but cannot be here. Hello, if we could give all them a round of applause, please, for watching. Amazing. Notice I didn't say my own kids when I was talking about who's watching, but that's okay. Um, so before I do talks like this, if you've seen me do a talk before, you know I always ask this question because it helps me sort of gauge the audience and some of the things I talk about. How many people here consider yourselves absolutely hog-wild sports fans? Okay. How many people consider yourselves like a casual sports fan? You follow it, but it ain't that big a deal. And how many of you would rather shave your head with a cheese grater than hear somebody talk about sports for 40 minutes? Anyone there? Oh, wonderful. Oh, what's your name? What is it? Pat. 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 Well, I really hope this talk hits its mark for the diehard sports fan, the casual sports fan, and CAD. That's our goal <laughs> for this session. If we can do that, we're going to get everything done perfectly. Um, so here we are at the Socialism Conference. So obviously, let's talk some sports. You know, it was, <laughs> duh. Um, <laughs> It was C.L.R. James, the great Trinidadian Marxist and revolutionary. He wrote a brilliant book about cricket. I know nothing about cricket. I love this book. It's called Beyond a Boundary. And in its opening, he penned the following statement. He wrote, what do they know of cricket who only cricket know? And it's a beautiful line. What do they know of cricket who only cricket know? And to use less elegant language, what James is saying is that you need to have some sense of the real world if you're going to understand the sports world. And perhaps you need to understand the sports world to have a view and lens to understand the real world. So in the tradition of CLR James, we're not going to talk about sports until we talk about some context. And you know, this is a conference, as you probably have figured out, where there are a lot of people with a lot of differing political views about the state of the world right now. So I guess we're starting with, with mine, representing only myself. Um, I believe that we're living in a time of great crisis, great opportunity for the left, great global struggle, but primarily, I would argue, we're living in a time of profound, profound reaction and the growth of the authoritarian right. Um, in this country, we've got the Supreme Court from hell which has grabbed the steering wheel of this country and turned it hard to the right, and I would argue has it headed straight off a cliff. Uh, the crushing of abortion rights, the deification of the gun, the elimination of, fear of free and fair elections, and the smashing of the wall between church and state. I think it's left the majority of this country kind of reeling about what to do, and also a lot of people on the left reeling about what to do. 
and questioning about how do you function when you know fascists, some of whom are intimately connected or in the Republican Party, are on the march. A couple hundred marched yesterday in Indianapolis. I mean, this is like nothing I've seen in my lifetime, the degree of confidence from the far right and, and the way it's connected to one of our ruling parties. And we need to really reckon with that. I mean, when even Joe Biden calls this iteration of the GOP semi-fascist, then you know that we're in a moment. And I, I'm sorry, I gotta stop my talk. I mean, what the hell, Joe? What, what's a semi-fascist? I'm sorry. I mean, th that, that to me is like saying my, my dog semi-barked. It's like it either barks or it doesn't. No such thing as a semi-fascist. I mean, so, uh, so these are troubled times that raise a ton of questions about how to organize, and, but they also raise questions, at least in my neck of the woods, about what's the ethical role of the athlete in a period such as this? How do you just play while the world burns? How do you, in effect, play through fire? And it's a critical question, not only because sports has proven itself to be an important site of resistance over the last decade, uh, but also because sporting spectacle will undoubtedly be used to distract a populace away from the reality of a society sliding into autocracy and environmental decay. But this is nothing new, and maybe that's the first thing to say to give us a sense of, of confidence, is that sports has been a feature of autocratic societies, of course, since the days of ancient Rome when the satirical poet uh, Juventus wrote of a society drunk on what he called Panem et Circensis. People know what that means? Bread and circuses, that's right. And what a gift those all-consuming obsessions were to the, to the corrupt political class that could operate in shadows while the world cheered, eyes firmly in the other direction. Now, the 20th and 21st century makes ancient Rome look both modest and quaint. I mean, while bread for too many is in short supply, the circuses are everywhere and constant, 24 hours a day and in the palm of our hands. But weapons of mass distraction everywhere. But the most popular and pernicious circuses are the mega events, particularly the Olympics and the World Cup, that have been used by murderous autocracies repeatedly to sp smash dissent at home and project a shiny, happy face abroad. Now, the most infamous example of this historically is the 1936 Olympics in Hitler's Berlin, which was basically staged as a two-week commercial for the Nazi party. And if people have more questions about anything that I raise, please raise them in the discussion, because I'm going to be doing shorthand for a lot of this history. But I don't know if folks knew this, but you know, most of the pomp and circumstance that we associate with the Olympics, like the running of the torch, for example, or when countries march in country by country into the main Olympic stadium, you know, stuff that's a staple of NBC's coverage, that comes from the mind of Joseph Goebbels, uh, the, the 1930s propaganda leader and 40s propaganda leader of Nazi Germany. And it was thought of and conceived for the 1936 Olympics. But it's not just the Olympics that create these scenarios. I mean, the most famous boxing match in the 20th century was probably the rumble in the jungle between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman, which was in a country then known as Zaire, now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Zaire was run by a bloody dictator and a CIA asset named Mobutu Sese Seko, who used this boxing match as a distraction to torture and kill dissidents to consolidate power. Um, or we could look at the 1978 World Cup in Argentina, where just a few streets away from the main stadium, the military junta's torture center was going at full tilt, killing a generation of resistance fighters while the world looked in the other direction. 
And it's not like this has only been revealed in later years, what happened in Argentina. I mean, back then, groups like Amnesty International, they held protests in front of embassies that included slogans like, yes to football, no, excuse me, yes to football, no to torture. But the media ignored it, and by June 1978, the military was at its strongest, and it had, thanks to FIFA, the world governing soccer body, a World Cup to thank. Now, I'm talking a lot about other countries, but make no mistake, the United States through the last century has taken this practice of using sports propaganda to obscure reality, and they have honed it to a fine art. I mean, when Jesse Owens, who was a black man, uh, won four gold medals at Hitler's 1936 Olympics, you had newspapers in the United States crowing about this, saying, this proves we're not a racist society. In 1936, this proved, Jesse Owens' victories prove we're not a racist society, unlike Nazi Germany, which believes in a master race. I mean, th these are Washington Post, New York Times columns. Like, we are not racist because of Jesse Owens. And this, of course, demanded willful ignorance of the ravages of Jim Crow, white terrorism, not to mention ignorance of the fact that Nazi ideology had been developed by studying the United States. You know, and if you, if you get to read the book, Hitler's American Model, the United States and the Making of Nazi Race Law, that one is an absolute eye-opener. Uh, and the media did the same thing when Jackie Robinson debuted in 1947. I mean, Jackie's heroics on the field meant that the sins of racism were receding in the past. You know, this is before the civil rights movement. They're saying in 1947, there's no more racism. The first time, at least according to my own research, that I see the words post-racial have to do with Jackie Robinson in the late 1940s, not some imaginary Obama presidency or whatever. Like, this was about using sports to cover up the crimes of racism, which Jackie Robinson knew all too well, which is why after his playing career, he became a barnstorming speaker for civil rights. And actually, it's kind of interesting, the, uh, he was the number one most requested speaker by southern branches of the NAACP. The number two most requested speaker was someone you might have heard of named Martin Luther King. And I always thought that was funny, like you imagine people in an organizing meeting being like, all right, can we get Jackie Robinson? No. All right, we'll get Dr. King. Oh my God, I can't believe <laughs> we gotta get Dr. King here. Jackie's busy, what are you gonna do? And his big line at the end of these speeches was, if I had to choose between the Baseball Hall of Fame and full citizenship for my people, I would choose full citizenship time and again, which is right on. Um, and by the way, back then, in the movement, when people use the word citizenship, it's not the way it's used today as a way to oftentimes divide people from the global south, from the United States, and who's undocumented and all that. Citizenship was used as a, as a way to say, you must recognize our humanity. So that was a powerful thing to say, I want full citizenship for all my people. Now, today, this use of, of sports as a sort of propagandistic fig leaf is done so often, it has its own name that you might be familiar with, sports washing. How many people are familiar with that term? I've heard it before, sports washing. Uh, 2022 in the mainstream media has in fact been called the year of sports washing. So for the media, seeing 2022 in such a matter in the world of sports, it's actually a very neat and tidy narrative because 2022 has been chock full of sports washing. Um, here's how the argument goes. Uh, sports can be understood by looking at three countries, basically, in 2022. China, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar. Uh, autocracies, all of them. And you know, China, of course, hosted the Winter Olympics while disappearing their own athletes in January 
uh, for speaking out a turn. Tennis star Peng Shuai uh, took to uh, social media to speak about her sexual assault. She was disappeared uh, for doing so. Um, and I hope no one here calls me a, a running dog for pointing this out. I was criticized greatly for criticizing China online about their hosting the Olympics. What are you, pro-Olympics? I, I don't get those politics at all. Um, then you have Saudi Arabia, which launched the Live Golf Tour. People have heard of that, playing golfers like Phil Mickelson, nine figures to abandon the Professional Golfers Association in order to basically sports wash the bloody hands of the House of Saud. And a quick word on the Live Tour. I don't want to shock anybody here, but golfers are not the most political bunch when you look at the athlete uh, world out there. And Mickelson was pressed by the mainstream media about like, how can you go with this live tour? You know, what, what are you doing? And I want to read you what he said, because it says so much. He said, Saudis are scary motherfuckers to get involved with. We know they killed the journalist Jamal Khashoggi and have a horrible record on human rights. They execute people over there for being gay. Knowing all of this, why would I even consider it? because this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to reshape the PGA Tour. Now, Phil Mickelson then apologized after this quote went public, but he didn't apologize to Saudi Arabia's victims. He apologized to the Saudi royal family. Um, and this is all a huge deal for Saudi Arabia because, you know, it, they have this perspective about the 2030s where they're gonna host both the World Cup and the Olympics as part of their Vision 2030 plan to project itself into the world. And lastly, we have Qatar. Uh, in a few months, Qatar will be hosting the World Cup, which is expected to bring an avalanche of positive coverage to a petro-dictatorship run by the Altani family, uh, even though quite literally thousands of migrant workers, many of them from one of the poorest countries on earth, Bangladesh, uh, have died being brought in to work um, construction. They've died on the job, thousands of workers, since they were awarded the World Cup. Dozens of them died actually building World Cup facilities. Uh, under horrific conditions. Uh, and so we're going to be watching a World Cup basically talk about playing through fire. It's going to be playing on blood. Uh, and, and if we're not saying that loudly during the World Cup, we're doing a disservice to all the workers who died. Now, these sports spectacles, these circuses, are in fact political events aimed at cleansing regimes that by all moral rights should be shunned. But as comfortable as it is to point out China, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar, which the mainstream media is doing, we have to see that sports washing is not just the province of autocrats. It is also common in the United States, uh, not just historically, as mentioned, but right now, preparations for the 2028 Los Angeles Olympics are going on, and unhoused people are being, are being herded up, either imprisoned or driven outside the city, um, be, having their personal possessions thrown away all for the purposes of building more stadiums uh, in Los Angeles and building more infrastructure for the Olympics. And this is just corporate welfare. This is a feeding, feeding frenzy that the poorest in Los Angeles are gonna suffer for. And lastly, a country that's always left out of the sports washing conversation uh, is Israel, uh, which regularly takes part in what they call sports diplomacy as they tour their athletes around the world, particularly using basketball, which I find particularly offensive because uh, basketball is awesome, but they use it to project an image of the country at odds with the reality of Palestinian apartheid. So sports washing is real and it's everywhere. It has an internal function to quash dissent at home and an external function uh, to project a scrubbed image abroad. 
But as we descend deeper into this age of reaction that we're living in, with sports brandished as kind of a crude, blunt tool against truth and political clarity, what is the ethical role of the athlete, if any? One thing first and foremost we need to understand is that athletes can play a critical role in times of resistance. And history is, of course, rich with examples of this. Uh, you know, we could talk about Muhammad Ali, Billie Jean King, Tommy Smith, John Carlos, Wyoming Atias, the great soccer star Socrates, who in 1982 stood up to the Brazilian dictatorship. But recent, that's, but that can feel like ancient history. Sometimes you talk about 1968, people think you're talking about 1868. So we need to talk about more recent examples of the way athletes have functioned under autocratic uh, circumstances. And I, I want to look at the Arab Spring over a decade ago as people rose up against autocratic political leaders and brutal monarchs. When this took place, prominent athletes, you didn't get this on ESPN, but prominent athletes took to the streets as orators, fighters, and even medics. Uh, the great Egyptian football player, maybe the greatest ever, a man named Mohamed Abu Treka not only lent his support to the occupation of Tahir Square, but he actually played a role in mediating a peace between two of the soccer fan groups who are known as the Ultras, uh, the Zamalek and Alawi. Now these are groups who, you know, if you put them at the same meeting, they would, if they were both here right now, first of all, they would sit on opposite sides, and second of all, they'd be fighting right now. By the time I'm halfway through the talk, fists would be flying. Uh, Abu Treka actually organized a truce between these two dire enemies for the purposes of them forming a blockade around Tahir Square to keep out Mubarak's forces, uh, playing a, a shockingly progressive role in that fight. Or you look at a place like Bahrain during the Arab Spring, you know, more than 150 pro athletes were imprisoned during the Bahrain uprising. They have a ministry of sports in Bahrain, and they created lists of rebellious athletes and systematically imprisoned and tortured them in the name of sending a message to the entire population. This included famed national team soccer player, Mohamed Hubeil, and the most famous jiu-jitsu champion in the region, a man named Mohamed Mirsa. People who are fans of jiu-jitsu would, would have heard of this person. He was just released after nine years behind bars for his role in the uprising. Uh, or in Syria, you know, the national goalkeeper for their national team, Abdul Basset al-Sarut, he became a rebel commander in the fight against Assad. Uh, we've also seen Palestinian athletes who've been imprisoned or killed standing up to Israeli apartheid. We've seen LGBTQ athletes in places like Russia come out and risk imprisonment. And we've seen sit-ins on the pitch by athletes in Greece in the name of refugee rights. And there's a book I would recommend to folks, it's called Soccer Versus the State by Gabriel Kuhn, K-U-H-N, which catalogs much of this in the international sphere. We're also beginning to see what such an athletic resistance could look like in the United States as we um, endure this slide towards uh, attempted autocracy, I'll call it. Uh, here in recent years, we've seen athletes ride the wave of the BLM movement and be political in ways unseen since the 1970s, and that's great. But the question we need to monitor is whether we'll see a similar commitment to being what they call an athlete activist during this age of reaction. I mean, we all remember 2016 when Colin Kaepernick took a knee, and I think I've done several talks about Colin Kaepernick taking a knee, maybe a few. And, but we also have to remember this was six years ago at this point. You know, that's a political lifetime. And it's time to see if a new generation is going to step up and show what they've learned. And there are already signs of people stepping up. Uh, WNBA MVP Brianna Stewart has stood strongly for abortion rights in the aftermath of Dobbs. 
uh, wearing shirts, speaking to the press, uh, mentioning, talking about it on social media, uh, like immediately after the Dobbs decision went down. Uh, Cincinnati Bengals Super Bowl quarterback Joe Burrow uh, has spent his young career, first of all, calling out poverty, which he did on draft night, uh, poverty in the United States, which, you ne which never gets talked about, uh, and hunger in the United States. And then after Dobbs, he put out a long statement about why he supports abortion rights. And then there's the iconic soccer hero, Megan Rapino, who has displayed in the recent months an incredible solidarity with transgender people uh, and, and has earned hatred from multiple political corners. And this is utterly vital, of course, as trans athletes have proven to be a central target of fascists and their friends in the GOP. In addition to this, there's a labor element to this too, and we've been talking about labor restiveness in the United States all weekend. Uh, minor league baseball players, and people heard about this, who, you know, the average major league salary is about $4.4 million a year. You know, for minor leaguers, it's between five grand and 14,000. That's how much they make in a year. And they've been organizing grassroots style independently for years to try to get the Major League Baseball Players Association to organize them. And they finally won that this past week, uh, which is very exciting. And yeah, that's worth applause. I mean, and they use social media brilliantly, like showing what a minor league meal looks like on social and people being <laughs> repulsed and nauseous. Um, and then there's Brittany Griner who I'd be remiss doing a talk like this without mentioning. Much to say about Brittany Griner. Uh, if you don't know who Brittany Griner is, I'm gonna guess you're not in this room right now. Um, I mean, Brittany Griner is more than just a hoops superstar. I mean, she's a, a black, queer, non-gender conforming uh, hoops god who is facing nine years uh, in a Russian prison, has been convicted of nine years in a Russian prison, uh, facing five of those years probably in a labor camp. Uh, it, it's absolutely disgusting, but one of the things that you've seen is after an initial period where there was such quiet in the United States about her imprisonment, which I thought was a terrible mistake as people around the WNBA and people who love Brittany Griner were quiet because the State Department told them to be, and they said, we'll handle this behind closed doors. You don't need to raise any sort of outcry or anything like that. And finally, Brittany Griner's wife, Sherelle, was just like, enough is enough. Being silenced is getting us nowhere. And she put out the word, and the WNBA is just like, and their allies have just exploded in, why is the life of a black queer woman held in such low esteem by the Biden administration that they're not doing everything in their power to bring her home? And, and what's particularly important about that is because one could imagine in a different world, and frankly, if it was a different athlete, let's call it Tom Brady, for example, not to pile on Tom Brady, but you know, fuck Tom Brady. But, um, <laughs> but like if it was Tom Brady who was being held hostage, I mean, you could imagine that being used to beat the drums of war and the US actually intervening in Russia militarily to free Tom Brady. Um, in this case, I think, first of all, what's been exposed is, first of all, the incredible sexism in the sports industry and, and racism and not holding up Brittany Griner's name at every opportunity. But what's also been so interesting is the way the focus of the athlete activists of the WNBA has been on Biden, not on Putin. And has been on get, you know, you turn to your own country and you say, are you gonna get this done or not? How much do you value? this life, and so I don't know what's gonna happen going forward with Brittany Griner, but I do know there's at least more hope now for a prisoner exchange than there was when we were exercising silence um, in the face of her plight. 
Um, you know, ap athletes can also openly refuse to be a part of sports washing. One example of this, and this is really powerful, it's like saying the emperor has no clothes. Uh, one example of this is Mahmoud Sarsak, who was a Palestinian soccer player who lost one third of his body weight after being wrongly imprisoned. He went on a hunger strike. Uh, he was freed after an international outcry. And when he got out, um, a, a high up, it was, it was revealed, like he did a lot of interviews and he talked about how you know, his soccer, player, soccer career might be over because of the physical strain of imprisonment. And he, say, he said something about his dream is to watch Barcelona. You know, that was his squad. He said, if I can see Barca, then maybe that'll make me feel better. And uh, one of the higher ups at Barca invited him to watch a match alongside a man named Jalad Shalit, uh, who was an Israeli soldier who had just been freed in a hostage situation. It was going to be Sarsak and Shalit together, a sports washing sign of peace, you know, watching the game together. And Sarsak refused to go to the match. And he said, the invitation to Jalad Shalit suggests an equivalence between the Zionist executioner and the Palestinian victim. And that means I cannot attend. Um, and yes, these kinds of actions come with their own kind of risk. I mean, we're not Bahrain yet in the United States with athletes being targeted and systematically imprisoned. But pro sports careers are remarkably short, and athletes very disproportionately come from poor backgrounds. And when a player steps out of line, like a Colin Kaepernick, they can pay for it with their careers. Uh, there are also, though, some of the very few people from impoverished backgrounds, very few people who are black and brown, who are actually granted a microphone in this society, which is why what they do with that microphone is so ruthlessly policed, why you get people saying shut up and dribble and things like that, is precisely because they're stepping out of that and actually reaching and influencing people who politicians in Washington could not hope to reach. And that's what makes them dangerous. So it's, but it's risky. But the age ahead will be defined by risk, not just for athletes, but for all of us. And just as the Arab Spring created a context of struggle, resistance, and revolution that inspired athletes to risk it all, we need to understand that if we want to see athletes struggle in the streets and use their mighty platforms to amplify the struggle, we first need the struggle itself. Athletes are not going to do it for us. You know, Muhammad Ali did not come down from Planet Awesome to change our lives and change our minds about the Vietnam War. It was the crushing realities of white supremacy and the intervention of the entire era of the 1960s. Otherwise, you know, his dream was to be Cassius Clay, someone who brought the showmanship of professional wrestling into boxing. And when he was asked who his hero was in 1961, he didn't say Malcolm X, he said gorgeous George Wagner, who was a blonde pro wrestler at the time. That, that was his dream. I want to be like gorgeous George accepted. And that's why he was saying all this stuff about like, I'm so pretty, I can't be beat. It was a pro wrestling mindset, except the difference between gorgeous George, who was blonde saying that stuff, and a black man in 1960 telling people how pretty he was, it actually had a radical effect and actually inspired, uh, and I'm the greatest, it inspired the Black is Beautiful movement when he talked about how pretty he was. And I mean that quite literally and directly. And also, I don't know why I'm telling Ali stories right now, but also um, when, uh, the, uh, when SNCC started the, the Lowndes County Democratic Party uh, in, in, during uh, the heights of, of, the civil, of the black freedom struggle, their symbol was a Black Panther. And it was the first time a Black Panther had been used in the political context. It predated the organization. And their symbol, their words, their slogan under the Black Panther was, we are the greatest. 
they took Ali's I am the greatest and they put a we on top of it. But the point of that is to say is that that only happened because of the intervention of mass struggle and mass organizations like SNCC doing the work on the ground. And so if we want to see more athletes use their hyper-exalted brought to you by Nike platform to speak out, that's the kind of intervention it's going to, going to take. You know, we're also going to have to be creative, and I'm going to start to wrap up here. Um, we, we can look to history for some answers. You know, the 19, in 1932, there was something called the Counter-Olympics that were held right here in Chicago as a racially integrated rebuke to the official nationalistic, almost all-white official Olympics taking place in Los Angeles. Like, they, led by the Communist Party, they just held something called the Counter-Olympics. And I think about 1936. This is so forgotten in history. This could have been such a historical game changer. Uh, Spanish socialists, communists, and anarchists, they were going to hold a People's Olympiad in Barcelona, worker-run Barcelona, in protest of Hitler's Olympics in Germany. So right down the road from Germany, it's like, that's the Nazi Olympics, we're the Socialist Olympics, you know, in Barcelona. We're the Workers' Olympics. It would have been genius counter-programming to Hitler's Nazi fest. And it also could have been an amazing and early display of anti-fascism on an international scale. Like, th think about like, that whole idea that people in the 1930s from the US who were fighting Franco, they were later, later labeled during McCarthyism as prematurely fascist. You know, this would have taken, anti-fascist, I'm sorry, prematurely anti-fascist. This would have taken that whole mindset and turned it on its head. But it didn't happen because Franco started the Spanish Civil War. Uh, so there are examples of what we can do uh, to not, that not only depends on athletes as amplifiers, but to use sports as an organizing tool against rising fascism. But this kind of creative use of sports as protest is not confined to the past. Uh, do you know the most watched sporting event in the world? I'm throwing this out there as a question. Any guess? It's the Tour de France. This is shocking, both hugely popular in the Middle East, and then, of course, all the people who go out and watch it as they go through town after town. Um, during the Tour de France this year, a French climate action group called Dernière Renovation blocked the race. And the organization said in a statement that it interrupted the 10th stage of the Tour de France to stop the mad race towards the annihilation of our society. So am I saying if the opportunity presents itself, we should be protesting at stadiums or doing direct action at stadiums or things like that? I'm, I'm certainly not not saying that. So, so, just, so this is the, the actual wrap-up here. You know, I think about that phrase, panem et circensis, you know, bread and circuses. And, you know, there really is nothing wrong with wanting food and wanting entertainment and wanting art. I mean, these are the things that make life worth living. They're what makes us human. Uh, and they are not, I would argue, def definitionally counterposed to struggle. Like, bread and circuses don't mean an absence of struggle. But those pursuits must be accompanied by so much more. It's like, yes, we want bread. Yes, we can enjoy the circus. But we also, no matter how difficult, must always, always demand justice. And I leave you with the words of Howard Zinn, who said the words that, to me, fit with this idea of playing through fire. Howard Zinn wrote, we see that the smallest of acts multiplied by the millions can lead to the greatest movements of social change. And we don't have to wait for some grand utopian future. To live now as human beings should live in defiance of all that is bad around us is itself the greatest of victories. Or remember the simple words of Zinn student Alice Walker, who said simply, resistance is the secret of joy. Uh, thank you very much.
We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. We are back with the talk, playing through fire, athletes in a time of reaction. Uh, Hope you dig it. Remember, if you want to see more talks uh, or hear more talks, go to We Are Many. Dot org. The one by Robin Kelly is unbelievable. Uh, let's go back to the topic at hand. Hey, my name is Matt. I thought this was super interesting. A lot of the, the anecdotes were incredible. Um, my question is, if you think that athletes have a general propensity to favor leftist causes, and what your thoughts are on the way that the right-wing media and political figures have used athletes to get behind causes like opposing the vaccine and, and supporting police and other things like that in ways that, in, in my perception, sometimes mirror the, the way that it's used on the, on the left by figures like, like Muhammad Ali or Kaepernick. Thank you, as always, David, for an enlightening presentation. My name is Bill Ballerson, he, him, from Oakland, California. And I still am an A's fan, despite the fact that the ownership is uh, miserably pro-corporate gentrifying and privatizing. That said, I'm going to throw out a few things. You can pick anyone you want to Uh-oh. talk about. One, the relationship of militarism to the NFL. Mm-hmm. Number two, um, the role of sportscasters in terms of speaking uh, truth to power. When we first met, it was a recep- uh, reception for Lester Rodney. Uh, and there are other sportscasters who are worth acknowledging. Number three is the Puma campaign. Um, and there are some teams, I believe, uh, that are involved in that. The new uh, soccer team uh, in Oakland uh, is coming around to calling for the, the boycott of, uh, of Puma because of produ- being produced in occupied territories in Palestine. Uh, just a quick thought on Muhammad Ali. I always told students, it was a trick question, what's the shortest poem in the English language? Um, but it said all of everything about Muhammad Ali. Anybody know the answer? Yes. Me, we. Me, we. <laughs> and the final thing is the topic you, you had in 2019, and I don't expect you to go into this now, but it's sort of an interesting contrast. You, 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 you spoke on sports under socialism. Uh, and I think we still have to pose that, not just because of exemplary individual athletes, but what it means to collective activity. Thanks. Thank you. My question is like, um, just like what you think about like, cause like in the MLB right now, there's like so few African American players compared to like, you know, the NFL and like the NBA. Like, why are there so few African Americans like in the MLB? And I don't know, just like, yeah, that's my question. Hi, I'm David. I'm uh, from uh, uh, the UK. Uh, I just want to talk a bit about. Uh, 
footballers as a uh, role. Well, I'm going to use the term football. You call it soccer, right? But the rest of the world calls it football. Mm. Uh, footballers as role models. In, in, in the pandemic, there was a big issue around uh, the fact that children who weren't at school who mm -hmm. used to get free school meals when they're at school, mm -hmm. right? Uh, couldn't get them because they were not at school. And a, 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 Man a, a Manchester United player, Marcus Rashford, the thing you want to answer about, about soccer players is most of them are from a very working class background. Mm -hmm. They do, if they reach the elite level, become super rich. But many of them don't forget their working class backgrounds. And he, 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 he was a, a son, he's a black player, he's a sort of a single parent. Uh, and uh, he led a campaign to reverse the government policy to provide free meals, food vouchers to kids who were at school. And he won that campaign and he did more than the Labour opposition in the country to actually achieve that victory. And I just want to also talk about the impact of, you mentioned Colin Kaepernick and taking the knee uh, and the Black Lives Matter movement. That's had a massive impact in sports in the UK. Mm -hmm. So uh, at the uh, insistence of the players, you, football players' union, uh, they raised taking the knee before games, and contrary to the NFL, it was actually embraced by the leagues. And so, essentially, for the last two seasons, before every football match, uh, both teams take the knee. There's one or two players, black players, that have refused to take the knee on the basis that it's a, a it's a gesture and it's not change but it's been universally uh, 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 welcomed and it's had a real big impact even on the TV they, they, they always say oh uh, the players are now taking the need to show our opposition to racism and uh, the need for unity and so that's had a really big impact on the issue of racism and sport mm -hmm. uh, there's also an issue around uh, in the uh, uh, Euro finals when the England team which is a predominantly black team uh, took the knee, uh, uh, they were booed by a section of England fans and uh, two, the, the Prime Minister and uh, the Home Secretary both defended the rights of fans to boo players taking the knee. But the response from the public was overwhelmingly backing for the team and at subsequent matches any boos were always drowned out by cheers and clapping and that's like my experience uh, yeah, uh, I'm at a supportable lowly club but uh, when players take the knee quite substantial applause for, uh, from it and just one last thing the far right in uh, Britain used to often try and organise through uh, football uh, and football hooligans and uh, the left do have a track record of turning up leafleting stadiums and trying to organise uh, yeah, a positive uh, support anti-racist football against the far right and we've been quite successful in defeating some of their attempts to mobilise football supporters as a sort of a, a, a street army. Hello, my name is Doug Patterson from Omaha, Nebraska, part of Omaha Socialists. And uh, I wish you could comment on the way in which, you know, I was, I was 10 years old in 1955 when I started watching television. There was one minute of commercial every half hour. Now we're up to about 10 or 11, especially in sports, mm -hmm. as a way to be able to propagate the, you know, our master's voice, to be able to coerce us into buying the things that capitalism has for us to make profit mm -hmm. off of us. It now is interrupting the flow of games. It stops play, especially in basketball, increasingly more in football, and they're aiming now at, uh, at football, soccer. Um, is, there, is there something to say about that? 
Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. I appreciate so much your thoughts. Thank, oh, thank you. Hey, Dave, thanks for the talk. Um, so one of the things I'm really curious about is, and you've kind of highlighted this on the global level, but I'm really curious about, um, I play basketball, pick up, I used to play, I was an athlete in high school and college, and I'm curious about, are there other routes of engaging the sports world, especially in the U.S. context, to make activism happen? Sometimes it feels as though- To make what? Make, make activism, make change happen. Okay. It feels like often that we rely on sports figures as influencers, where we organize separately and then we pull them in to do something or make a lobby for them. Is there anything that's more grassroots where like we see athletes here in local level? I know the WNBA has been tremendously helpful with this, but they're at the WNBA. Is there anything on like a, like a younger scale or people who are actively athletes doing more change-based work that are much more tied to organizing in a more hand-in-hand -hand way? Or is it simply this notion of organizers reaching out to lob athletes to lobby on behalf of a cause? Thank you. Uh, I guess I want to make one comment. There's a lot. I have everybody's question. I'm going to try to get to them. I really hope other people try to answer questions just because it would make my life so much easier. And all the questions are terrific. It's just, I don't know, like you've been to a lot of meetings this weekend. Like the wrap up where the person is like the great answerer and has all the answers is eh. I don't think it's the best way to build socialism. But I will try to answer as much as I can, but I, I hope people try as well. But I really wanted to answer that last question only because um, I wrote this book, The Kaepernick Effect, precisely to try to answer that question because this young generation is more diverse and less tolerant of intolerance than any generation in the history of time. That's who we have in the United States right now. And that's, I'm, I wanna be very clear, as someone not from that generation, my role and our role if you're me or older here, our, our job is not to, to, to you know, cross our arms and say, save us, Generation Z, save us. Our job is to figure out how to center them, center their struggle, and provide all the support we can materially, organizationally, politically, whatever we can do to help them in their capacity to lead struggles going forward, because they're doing it. They're absolutely doing it. And, um, and, what I, and when there is this struggle in the streets, like with the Black Lives Matter movement, what you've seen because of this generation, you saw them, athletes, take to their own football fields and take a knee, cheerleaders taking a knee, band members taking a knee, people taking a knee during the anthem, uh, soccer, softball, everything you could possibly imagine, it happened and it cohered itself into a kind of national movement that the mainstream media didn't notice or didn't understand, which is why I went after the book, because I was like, all these people are gonna get tossed in the memory hole and all we're gonna remember is that Colin Kaepernick took a knee and some people were mad about it, you know? And it's like, no, there's something much, a much deeper process happening here. And I don't know about y'all, but like where, where I grew up, the idea that you would look to the high school sports team as the place for progressive change is kind of, it would have been an absurdity at my high school. And it's a remarkable thing now, the way the wine is out of the bottle and of how you're an athlete, they're, they're a young athlete to be clear, there is this expectation that you have this platform and that you're gonna do something with it, particularly around issues of racism and police violence, but we're seeing particularly women athletes, particularly black women, expanding what it is that we need to be talking about on the streets. And particularly, you can't talk about this without talking about the incredible heroism right now of probably the smallest minority of athletes in the entire sports world. I'm talking about trans athletes uh, and their ability to not only play, but play 
there's no other way to put it with a target on their back that's been put there by fascists and by the GOP. So it's there, it's self-active, it's not us coming from the outside, and it's something that's not gonna change, I would argue, no matter how bad things get at the youth level. Uh, now the adults, whew, when I talk to athletes, just so people know, like I talk to pro athletes, and they're all, they feel like Kaepernick was a million years ago and they're wondering what's gonna be the next thing and they're all feeling corporate pressures. Remember how the NFL had end racism in the end zone? Guess what, it ain't there anymore. And they're getting that message very strongly and I'll, I'll stop, I'm going on to, I wanna hear from y'all. But that, that's just what I wanted to say is that like it's happening because there's a generation on the move. That was great Dave, just a couple of questions. One is that uh, have the WNBA and the NBA Players Associations formally come out for Free Britney? And what does that mean for the AFL-CIO? The only reason I ask this is because, you know, getting something passed and going on record is a precondition for them doing something. Because I, I think that unless you have an international day of action, and I mean action, you know, not Facebook pictures, but, you know, action, you know, nothing's going to change. I mean, I just think that we've learned that from Scottsboro to any other struggle, you know, in, 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 our, in our lives. The other is, is that there's a sort of phenomenon, and I wanted to know what you thought of this, or a genre, what, you know, of, uh, particularly on Amazon, of these new documentary series called All or Nothing, All or Nothing Arsenal, All or Nothing, and they pick a kind of te team or uh, a particular sport. And the thing that I notice about them is they're all very compelling. You know, they're kind of like Dick Wolf's Law and Order in the sense that, you know, that you know what they're going to be like, but it doesn't mean that they're not very compelling. And, but they have a kind of bent to them of the dilemmas of the coaching staff and upper management. And while the players are there, uh, it's obviously bent towards them. And I don't know if you've ever had a chance to you know, think about, that's how sports is being presented, or the, the, or the problems of teams mm -hmm. and the troubles they're having and how they move forward. And they're widely popular, and they're being shown all the time now, particularly on Amazon. And I didn't know if you had any thoughts about that. Mm. Uh, Dave, I believe, I, I believe uh, you, you showed up on my radar in 2009 when Chicago was going for the Olympics for the 2016 game. Uh, someone interviewed you on TV, and I saw it, et cetera. So I became involved with No Game Chicago, and we fought it. and. Uh, you know, they didn't get it, obviously. The next year, the mayor of Chicago retired. So a lot of people were saying, we sent them to retirement. There was a lot of talk, talks about corruption, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But last year, uh, some, a couple of Olympic members went to prison or got convicted for bribing other ones. It was $200 million. Mm. So, I mean, we, I was out there all these meetings, all these hours, but I didn't know they had their other agenda. I mean, had I known, I could have done other stuff. Mm. So, no, I appreciate it. I love it. Hi, Dave. Um, I'm from South Africa, I told you uh, yesterday. And so sports washing and boycott is a big deal to, uh, to me and to South Africans. I, I guess I have two and a half questions, <laughs> as you could say. The first one is, um, Muhammad Ali, did he ever speak later on about his visit to Zaire or Democratic Republic of Congo and basically like, um, I, I don't wanna say apologize, but mm. basically um, account for, uh, for his travel there. Um, 
The second thing, and it's related to the spot washing again, and it's about Qatar. And um, Qatar has um, gets a lot of um, criticism for, and, and legitimately so, for, for the, the stadiums, right? And um, uh, the, the question I have is that, you know, the companies that built these stadiums, many of them are European companies. Mm -hmm. And so the thread uh, is very much like neoliberalism mm -hmm. between the autocratic, autocratic regimes and demo mm -hmm. democracies, right? So what does it mean to um, to say, okay, let's boycott the World Cup or let's speak out about the World Cup? What, are, what exactly are we speaking mm -hmm. out about? Because, um, you know, everything is totally connected. Mm -hmm. and, and I guess this is the, the last part, and that is to do with um, what are athletes really supposed to do when it comes to these things? Because, for instance, like, uh, I'm a big cricket fan, and so the question is, um, like, are we supposed to talk about cricketers not going to India these days, for instance, where there's a rise of Hindu uh, extremism and um, Hindu nationalism, the occupation of Kashmir is expanding. Um, and so, you know, in South Africa, when we speak about uh, apartheid, um, we asked people not to travel to South Africa to play cricket or rugby or anything else. So when does it, when does it turn towards calling for a boycott? Mm. Um, my name's Emma, and I had questions kind of more about like the role of schools and universities in repressing athletes, as well as kind of the role of the student athlete. And I was kind of thinking this on different sort of levels. Um, I'm from New York City. It's the most segregated school system in the country, and there's thousands and thousands of Black and Latinx students that have no access to sports teams in their schools at all. You don't have the opportunity for after school clubs. In my school, like, I didn't have a gym. They called it like a dance studio. It was like a room with a mirror. <laughs> and that's our, our like physical education, right? So there's the question of like, in schools, the lack of access to sports and athletics. Mm -hmm. And then on a different level, then, and often more at the university level, but also at the high school level, and even middle school level of then like the control over student athletes and now you're controlling their financial aid, their grades, their schooling, um, and all these other things and how I think that that's kind of where the issue starts. Um, so yeah, just the question of like, what is the role of the school and how can we be changing that and how can student athletes be changing that for non-student athletes? Thanks for the talk, Dave. Um, so my question really is about, you know, the idea of the athlete activist and also, I guess, how that bumps up against, like, identity politics. So, you know, I'm thinking of Serena Williams. Um, I think we all are. We are, yes. <laughs> we are all <laughs> thinking about Serena. Um, and, you know, I know for a fact, like, I'm not, I'm like one of the casual sports fans, like the, the middle group, right? And I don't know much about, I don't even really know what, how tennis works, really. I just know that I love to watch her play. And when I see her twirling on the court, I feel like I'm twirling on a court, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, it's really a beautiful thing to see her just be so great, you know, and, and to have reached the levels that she has. But at the end of the day, like, when she has retired, she's gonna be a venture capitalist, you know? So, like, how do you really, how do you make sense of that? You know, the fact that, yeah, she's a black woman, she is, like, busting down all kinds of doors, you know, representation does matter. I know that me as a black feminist, a socialist, just love the idea of her. But at the same day, at the same, in this, you know, she's also going to be a venture capitalist. She's going to be working, you know, as one of the, as one of the ruling class. So 
Um, yeah, I want to get your thoughts on that. Mm. I just have two answers to our comrade from Oakland. The shortest poem in the English language I understand to be written by San Francisco poetess Diane de Prima, it goes like this. We despise flies. Four syllables, two rhymes, two lines. Diane de Prima. <laughs> Another answer to your question about the NFL and militarism I learned from a joke that goes like this. Why is the NFL like US foreign policy? They, <laughs> they both consist of organized violence interrupted only by secret meetings. Hey y'all, my name is Yasmin um, Shiarte, uh, currently in Seattle, USA. So. Speak a little louder. I said hello, my name is Yasmin Shiarte. Hey, Dave, thank hey. you so much for, for the talk. It was really great. And thanks, you all, for your questions and comments. They've been interesting to listen to. Um, listening to your talk, uh, a particular anecdote comes to mind that I wanted to share with you in the room, um, along with a couple of questions. Um, so last year, um, the English Premier Lake decided to do some sort of like queer inclusion campaign or something like that that they called it, where they had um, uh, folks wear um, rainbow laces on their cleats. Um, obviously, <laughs> serious limitations there. But um, Mohammed Abutreka, the same person that you sort of mm. give an example about, uh, used a pretty big platform on television to um, actively sort of campaign against that and mm -hmm. also urged Muslim players not to partake. Mm -hmm. um, Hamadabutrika is Egyptian, heavily followed. Uh, queer folks in Egypt are a heavily persecuted, mm -hmm. um, heavily scapegoated community. So I guess my questions are, one, I went to um, a talk about elite capture of identity politics yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, how do we see that at play in terms of fucking rainbow leases as if mm -hmm. that liberates anybody? Um, but also the contradictions of someone like Abutrika, who played such mm -hmm. um, a progressive role in the context of the revolution, playing such a reactionary role mm -hmm. um, in that moment. Uh, thanks, y'all. Great question. Hey, y'all. Um, I'm Kiefer from Chicago. You see him pronouns. I'm glad the Tour de France has come up a couple times. I'm a big cycling fan. Uh, the, the cycling's a really weird sport in that the trade teams are all named after their corporate sponsors. Um, and it's an interesting example of sport washing because increasingly you have nation states acting as corporate sponsors. So you have literally a, a Team UAE Emirates, Team Bahrain Victorious, and I was really devastated when one of my favorite cyclists, Michael Woods, signed for Team Israel Startup Nation, uh, which is wild. Um, but you know, I wanted to ask a question about sort of rank and file players unions. So, in cycling, there's a long-standing uh, riders' union called the CPA, uh, and a couple of years ago, uh, riders recognized that this union was not really serving their interests. It had a voting system that was totally rigged um, to favor basically management, and they formed uh, an entire counter union called the riders' union. Um, and I think that these stories are really they're really educational 
uh, to talk about what unions can do, how they should be functioning, and, and essentially the rank and file strategy. And I'm wondering, um, you know, given your experience as a socialist sports writer, um, like what the barrier is to seeing more stories, because I'm sure that there are analogs in, in lots of other sports as well. So, because uh, it strikes me that seeing stories about uh, uh, players kind of being more radical in their, in their labor formations is, is highly educational for mm -hmm. everyone. Can I, can I ask a question of the crowd really quick before you go? I'm sorry. Just by, by, by a show of hands, um, who, who wants me to, 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 to wait until the end and let y'all talk as much as possible so we could hear each other? Who wants me to come back and try to answer some of this stuff? Oh, geez. I thought, I swear, I swear I thought it was going to be the opposite. Um, what? Yeah, they're paying me for it. Um, <laughs> all right, I'll, I'll be super brief. No, 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 because I'm, I'm, from where I'm sitting, I, I think y'all are amazing. And give yourselves a round of applause, please. Y'all are just the best crowd in the history of this conference. Um, so okay, I'm saying that for the Zoom people. Um, so just, just a couple of things. Uh, I'll just try to run through some of it. You know, it, it's interesting. Like, this is such a provocative, terrific question about Serena, um, because Serena has meant so much to so many, and she hasn't just been what I would call a representative athlete. Like, oh, a, a black woman in tennis. You know, that gives me hope. She's she's also been somebody who has spoken out on issues racism, sexism, being a black woman in this country. Um, I mean, the fact that she almost died in childbirth and she used that opportunity to speak about um, mortality levels of, of poor black women. I mean, so that to me is the question. I, you know, I, I, to, my, 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 my guide for this is Serena going to become a venture capitalist? Yeah, pr yeah. I mean, we live in a capitalist society and capitalism sucks and people get slotted into these positions and when you have that kind of wealth and honestly that kind of clout and Q rating, that's what they're going to slot you into. Uh, to me, it becomes a question, though, is will Serena, going forward, follow what I would describe as the Jackie Robinson path, who always said, his, what he would always say is, people always ask me if I had it made because I'm successful. Well, I'm more interested in how the masses of the people are doing rather than the success of one individual. And, and, he, and he, when he said that, he, he said other stuff, too, like I'm a... Like, no matter how successful I ever get, I'm a black man in this country, whether it's 1919, whether it's 1947, whether it's 1973, I will not stand for the flag. That is not my flag, because I am a black man in America, and I do not have it made. And it's always this, this push to the collective. You know, you think of what Eugene Debs said about when I rise, it's going to be with the ranks, not from the ranks. And we have to be very careful to not confuse individual representation with collective progress. And so what I want to see from Serena, what I, what I hope to see, what I hope to write about, is that she always keeps her foot in, in the question of collective pro progress so we can continue to be inspired by everything that she does represent and everything that she's spoken for. So I guess what I'm saying is that we need to really be politically assessing what people are doing and have, this is a theme of the weekend, a set of independent politics so we're not bound to any of these people. You know, it's like, oh, I'm in the Serena party, I can't say shit. You know, it's like, no, you, you gotta be able to be independent from that. And that's the same answer about Abu Treka. I should have mentioned that, I knew about that story. It's bitterly 
disappointing that he did that. It does raise the question, though, of the rainbow flag thing. And I, I wrote about this when um, a couple of players on the Marlins, for right-wing homophobic reasons, were like, well, everybody's wearing a rainbow. We're not going to wear the rainbow. And I wrote a column where I was like, well, maybe there's a problem with making it corporate and compulsory for people to wear the rainbow. Maybe it should be a situation where the players who actually do give a damn about fighting homophobia wear the rainbow and the people who don't need to explain themselves. Like, why can't we do it that way in a way that actually gives the players, AKA the workers, some agency and it's not branding because you're obsessed with the pink economy or the pink dollar or whatever the hell they're saying in marketing rooms on Madison Avenue. So, you know, I'm against corporate sin washing, which is what I would refer, I refer to it as, because these corporations are racist, sexist, homophobic, and then they say, oh, but we wear a rainbow. Um, so, yeah, so Abu Treka to me is, is absolutely horrific for, for being the voice of that right-wing approach, but I think if you stopped the corporate imposition of some of the, the, the branding, the social justice branding, I think what you would see is actually more players step up and then force very real discussions that need to happen in far too many locker rooms, particularly among the men. So I'm just gonna stop there, I'm sorry. All right, wait, one more last thing. Because um, it's, it's uh, the theme of this talk is that capitalism ruins everything. Um, and what my man Miles from Seattle was just asking about, about what he's really asking about is the breaking of the tradition of black Americans in baseball which is a long, beautiful, incredible tradition that runs through Jackie Robinson, Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, and somebody who I spent a decade defending, Barry Bonds. Um, and why has that tradition been broken? Uh, the number one reason why it's been broken is about globalization and neoliberalism. I mean, it was found it's much cheaper to build baseball academies in Venezuela and the Dominican Republic. They sign kids for a couple of grand. If they don't make the majors by 18, which is over 90% of them, they're thrown right onto the scrap heap and left to figure out what else to do with their lives. It's horrifically exploitative, particularly in a sport like baseball, because think about it. You want to find that one player who's really good. It's not like basketball where somebody can just do drills in a gym or football where someone can lift weights. You need like 20 other people to see if that one person is major league worthy. Well, what happens to the other 19 people who are there for that? That's, so so th there's that level of globalization. And then there's the effort of what we need uh, to be able to have baseball in our cities. That requires infrastructure. That requires parents with jobs that have leisure time. You know, that requires a city community so kids can actually get together and play stickball and things in the street. But we live in an era of of the suburbanization of poverty in the United States and the sprawling of people of color in too many communities to the point of which getting together for a sport as collective as baseball or making sure that the boys and girls club is funded so there can be a team, I mean, those things have just been gutted and hollowed out, which is actually one of my arguments in the Kaepernick effect about why it's totally legitimate to protest at these publicly funded stadiums because in far too many communities, Everything's been hollowed out. You know, the, the things that our parents grew up with, the Elks Club, you know, the bowling league, like these things, like we're so atomized, these things have been destroyed. And in a lot of communities, a small town in Ohio, let's say, the stadium is the only place where people gather collectively on a Friday night or on a Saturday. And so it should also, it demands itself to be a place where civic action is expressed as well.
Thank you for that. I, I wasn't going to talk about that, but but yeah, where I'm from, Austin, Texas. Hi, I'm Chris, by the way. Um, we had uh, the Black Senators, uh, which uh, were a team that were started in the, I believe, the late 1800s and ran through the 40s, um, and entirely black-owned enterprises. And and obviously, like um, the the gutting of of the black community in Austin ended the ability to for for the financing that contributed to really a healthy economy that allowed. You know, black stadiums to be built and filled regularly, uh, and no less than four future Hall of Famers uh, mm -hmm. from Negro League play came from Austin uh, during this period. Um, wow. So, uh, lots of lots of things I really wanted to think about um, the context of this. So, um, but I guess one thing I wanted to say was about Kaepernick, and um, so I, I do work in um, uh, limiting police and prison expansion in Austin uh, and other criminal justice issues and a former organization I worked for, even though I didn't want us to, took NFL money that was given out post Kaepernick. Uh, you know, their effort to whitewash their firing of Kaepernick and, and uh, uh, Eric Reed and, and others who mm -hmm. participated in those protests. Um, and and as, as problematic as that money was, I actually sat on a, on a, on a call with uh, Roger Goodell, uh, along with the other groups uh, that were given, getting money and that $25 million was going to campaigns to organize court watch, uh, was going to campaigns to in-cash bail, and, and my organization's campaign at the time, the former organization I was with, uh, to, to expunge and cleanse uh, people's criminal histories. So um, there were a lot of good things that came out of that effort, um, mm -hmm. even, even the efforts to whitewash that. Mm -hmm. My question, though, was about, um, about media coverage of protests. Uh, to, uh, and just, I'm wondering about your impression about the extent to which media is going further to to mm -hmm. to hide uh, uh, coverage of protests, and particularly in the context of the protests that occurred during the NBA playoffs this last year in in, in Minneapolis against mm -hmm. the owner mm -hmm. uh, over animal rights uh, mm -hmm. in his treatment of pigs in his various you know pig slaughtering factories, and really how effectively multiple interruptions in, mm -hmm. in a row were really just covered up, where people you know, glued themselves to the floor during live game action, and somehow that really didn't break through. Mm -hmm. So I'm just really intrigued about your impression of, of coverage of, of civil disobedience and, and how that can be more effective in, in breaking through what seems like a, a mm -hmm. media uh, blackout. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, I, I didn't think you saw me, but thank you. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, I'm a huge sports fan, and particularly because I didn't grow up in the U.S., so I was also sort of a jock, which is rare for a leftist. But I grew up with the hooligan culture in the Middle East, particularly for soccer. And um, I don't know if, I mean, I've read a lot of your stuff, but I didn't really see you, you uh, uh, maybe you wrote about this, but about the Premier League situation and then the soccer uh, closed league that they're trying to get, mm -hmm. but all this like huge owners of the clubs and whatnot, and just for the first time, a lot of the like the pundits, like Gary Neville and Carragher, all those guys, they're just like came out openly saying they're socialist, mm -hmm. and they need the they need the teams to be owned by the people or whatever, which was very surprising and also shocking for the even media, like Sky Sports and. And then they, they, they sort of wanted to like tame them down at the one point. But the, the soccer issue is 
massive, it seems like. It's just like with the World Cup now and everything else. And and, um, and we are, there's like very few teams in the world that is like people's own. Like I think Barcelona and Real Madrid are, are like Boca Juniors and you know, like those Argentinian teams and pretty much I think the, the Turkey, for the most part, the teams are owned by fans, but there's really not a like a co-op fan run mm -hmm. club exists right now. Yeah. I mean, and, and it used to be back then. And also within the toxic fan uh, hooligan culture, because I'm coming from this, um, you know, there's like now within the Iranian one, which I'm from, like there is a left wing element to it now for, for our team. But like for the most part, it's like shifting to the alt right and like far right in, in particularly in East Europe, as you remember, the uh, Ukraine and Poland that they wanted even to cancel the Euros there because it was like super fascisty. And with the Ukraine war, a lot of those fascist groups are the bit fan base of the teams. Uh, anyway, I was I just was curious to see what you think about that. Hey everyone, my name is Gabe Pius from Chicago. Um, so I wanted to talk about the wave of, of ridiculous laws banning trans kids from playing sports right now. I'm a teacher, so you know I'm always encouraging my kids to get involved in sports and CPS. Uh, it's a lifeline. Um, there are more anti-trans laws banning kids from playing sports than there are actually trans girls playing sports. Exactly. So we need to consider this as a long line of the rights imagination, which is really the most dangerous element in American society. Maybe you'll remember when we were told to be afraid of the war on Christmas. As far as I'm concerned, people are still celebrating Christmas in the US. Mm -hmm. uh, then they told us that there were jihad sleeper cells. That never happened. They, were, they told us there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. It never happened. Uh, they told us that Antifa super soldiers were going to come and wreck the society. That never happened. So now they're moving on to trans kids, which is just such a 1% of the kids' population. I mean, really latching onto the most vulnerable populations to use this state as an armed wing of the church, essentially, of their most radical fundamentalist interpretation of their faith. Uh, and it's just indefensible, right? And, and I also ask, when did the right actually ever become uh, the self-appointed guardian of children? If they gave a single shit about children, maybe they would have continued the child tax credit, which single-handedly cut child poverty in half. Or maybe these 25 Republican states would have accepted Medicaid expansion, which would have provided basic medical care to millions of poor families in the country, but they didn't do that. Uh, maybe they wouldn't have supported creeps and pedophiles like Matt Getz and uh, like Roy Moore, which they still supported, even though they call us teachers who support our trans students, groomers left and right. So the imagination of the right is pure trash. There's no material to it. There's no history to it. There are no fact to it. It's really based in imagination. That's what it is. It's fiction. And the second thing I'm going to say is I remember when Tr Trump announced the travel ban and mm -hmm. people in Chicago were flocking to O'Hare Airport. Yep. But at the same time, the Cubs were selling out uh, games when the Ricketts family uh, was donating millions of dollars to the Trump campaign. So I was seeing this cognitive dissonance of a city that no doubt hates Trump and hates everything that the neo-fascist right in this country represents, but was still paying game after game directly into the Ricketts campaign to fund Trump. So how do we connect the, the sentiment of the people who enjoy sports as leisure uh, to the politics and to the values that we propose, that we put on the table. 
Thank you. Good question. There, there's so there's so many good questions. Um, first and foremost, someone asked this question about like, is there sports? Can any sports be like anti-business? Can it be operated anti in a way that's not just about the push for profit? And you know, at, at the macro level, I mean, we got to realize that sports as a business is, is bigger than U.S. Steel. Uh, it's by, by a pretty huge margin. Uh, you have the professionalization, not just obviously of what we all watch and imbibe in the Super Bowl and all the rest of it, but youth sports is hyper-professionalized. Youth sports is a for-profit endeavor. Youth sports has been brutal to the working class of this country. There's even a book that's really good called um, The Most Expensive Game in Town. And it's about how working class and poor families sacrifice for their kids to play youth sports. Because it's not that poor kids aren't playing, it's that their parents are undergoing incredible, incredible efforts so they can play. And, but usually, and I'll get to this in a little bit, but usually that only happens, unfortunately, when the child shows some talent and they think that child could at the very least generate a scholarship, if not professional riches. I mean, it's the equivalent of you know, your child becoming like a lottery ticket really, when you think about the chances of actually doing it. It's a, it's a tragic set of affairs, but when you're, you're poor, you work with what you've got. And one of the things that goes up against is when I'm gonna talk about what sports should look like in a socialist society, I'm not gonna talk about that right yet, but one of the fundamental parts of it has to be universal play. And breaking off this idea that says only if you're good do you get to play? Because sports should be about fun. It should be about making friends. It should be about leisure. It should be about joy. And when we have it broken down to, okay, people who are super fit and super skilled, you're the only ones who get to do it. And the rest of us get to watch. Whew, that's not only um, ugly and, and hyper-authoritarian in itself and vertically organized, uh, but you know, it, it's also horrible uh, message that it sends the kids in terms of the pressure that it puts on them. You know, one of the statistics that boggles my mind is that, you know, 70% of kids quit youth sports by the time they're 13. 70%. Why are they quitting at 13, especially when, as a teenager, it can be so helpful to have this outlet to play? And the, the number one reasons why they quit is Honestly, it's not that they're not good enough or whatever, but according to the, the, stud, the studies, they quit because it's just too much bullshit by the time you hit 13. And they're just like, it's their, in a lot of ways, it's their first act of rebellion is when they say to mom or dad, you know, I'm not doing this anymore because I don't want to drive two hours every day to play on all these games. I'm not willing to do what's demanded of you to be a part of the sports industrial complex. You know, to be part of what is a profit-making endeavor. Uh, that being said, uh, if you want a sport that, that actually actively works against the motives and uh, levers of big business, check out your local roller derby squad. Because what people have done to claim and reclaim roller derby and run it in a way that's, that's kind of beautiful, it's the best. Yeah, so, so sports is, is plagued by business, but check out roller derby. Okay, I guess it's my, my message. This message was brought to you by the Roller Derby Association of America. No, it's great. Um, hand me notes when I'm, please, please, because I don't want to go on forever. Three minutes, yeah, hand me when it's, please, when it's like one minute left. I'll just, so I'm just going to keep going down the list here. Um, 
Right-wing athletes, we gotta remember that sports reflect society. So when the right wing's on the march broadly, you're gonna have right-wing athletes who feel like it's their place to, to basically wave the, the brown flag, as it were. Uh, but what you see in sports, which is really interesting, is you traditionally have seen a pretty even split between the way it works is uh, very conservative white male players and uh, black players. Uh, and when it comes to women, it's much more, much more uh, diverse and mixed and much more left and much more liberal on the whole. Although this has been confused recently because the, the anti-trans stuff has made inroads among a minority but still a significant layer of women athletes, which to me is just about laundering fascism through this and trying to cancel trans people writ large as in their existence. And we have to be clear that when they go after trans athletes in sports, that's about a slippery slope about trans existence, not just about athletics, which makes it to me a much bigger question than just, than, you know, this kind of like question of like, well, do, do trans girls, uh, is, is there an advantage they have in sports? Like, it's such a bigger question than that. You know, it's, this is about whether or not trans people are gonna be treated, as we say, with full citizenship or not. And so that, that, that's a position we have to take. And it's also gotten more confusing because of the vaxxing and the anti-vaxxers who include people like Kyrie Irving, who a basketball player who actually had a series of very left-wing positions throughout his career. And then the vaxxing, oh, Eric's rolling his eyes. He does say the earth is flat, but I always felt like that was a troll move about the earth is flat. I don't know. And, you know, that's going to be actually a talk next session about whether the earth is flat. So you, no, I'm just kidding. Um, just kidding. All right. One, one minute left. So th there's a lot more. And I, if, anybody I didn't get to, if anybody wants to talk to me afterwards, I'm totally here. Uh, the, the two last points I'll make is, first of all, the thing about rickets is really, that to me is like such an important question. Because you can have a situation where a community is super politicized and left, and they're going to sporting events that are being run by like the Ricketts family. And it's not just the Ricketts family, sports owners are ghouls of the right wing. They are funders of Donald Trump. They, if you look at where they spend money, they support the institutions of the right, not just candidates. But if you know about Colorado Springs and the, you know, the, the media research, whatever, the family research council, all these groups, like, like sports owners are tied into all these things. And what they're doing is they're laundering our money through publicly funded stadiums that our taxes pay for to fund the right wing. I mean, it's money laundering of, of hard right wing politics through our joy of sports. And I think the best way to deal with it for the person who asked is to actually be, use it as an inroad to have, be, as we say, an ideological Trojan horse to be able to speak to people about corporate power and about the rise of the right. Like, so it's like you're talking to somebody about the Cubs, bring up the rickets. You know, talk about what they represent. Use the opportunity of the shared space of loving baseball to be able to speak about who's profiting from it. And lastly, um, let's talk about what we're fighting for. Because I, the whole talk was about we're living in this horrific, I think, uh, age of sliding reaction. Uh, you've got fascist ideas becoming more mainstream. And so what does the athlete do in that situation? Well, the athlete has to resist. But what's the end goal of that resistance? Because I don't know about, when I organize with young people, I hear so amazing stuff about how they want to dismantle the system. But then when I say, okay, what do you want to replace it with? That's where it becomes a more tempered discussion. 
And oftentimes, and this, this actually breaks my heart that the, ex, that the expectations are so low. Like, like, they're like, we need to dismantle policing in this country. Well, what, what should be in its place? We, we just need to be heard about what our concerns are. We need racism to be addressed. But what are we trying to build? And I think us being able to say what we're trying to build is so important to the rebuilding of a left in this country. So if we're, so if we're gonna talk about sports, let's talk about a world I mentioned where universal play happens, where we break down that divide between spectator and participant. And sports really are for everybody, regardless of effort. I think, and, and desire, you know, it's like sports should be fun. If you wanna be the kid in center field who picks dandelions, there should be a place for you to sit in center field and pick dandelions. It shouldn't be that person's not serious. Well, maybe they are serious. They're serious about being with their friends. They're serious maybe about hitting a couple of dingers and they're serious about dandelions. That's a great contribution to the team. And you know, I, I coach rec ball and what I always say to the kids, I say like, look, honor the sport and if you win, you win. You know, that'll happen on the process, but just, Honor the sport, enjoy being out there, enjoy yourself, and try to get as much out of it as possible. And when you see your teammates in the hallway at school, which is a very alienating environment, maybe smile at them, maybe throw them a wink, maybe give them a pound, maybe feel a little less alone because you play on this team. Far too often, coaches, it's much more like survival of the fittest, and that's absurd. We're talking about youth sports. You know, and any youth coach who you talk to who thinks they're a general, cut them off at the knees right away. There's enough militarism in our society. We don't need it being taught to six-year-old kids. I also think a sports world that breaks down the wall between, uh, on the question of gender is really important. Like, why are, we need to ask fundamental, I'm not saying I have the answer to these questions, but to ask, why do we have boys, girls, and girls sports? What space does that leave open for trans kids? to be able to compete. And why not think about breaking ourselves, I'm not saying we shouldn't like segment and break ourselves up, but there's a million ways we could do it around desire, around ability, around all kinds of things so people can develop themselves physically. The first, people, like, there's no question that women athletes have built incredible institutions for themselves over the last hundred plus years, but it started because they were denied play. Not because it was seen as logical with men and women meeting together on an equal playing field and saying, well, we'll play over here and you play over here. Actually, that idea of, div of division flew in the face of how people played in this country for centuries, dating back to Native American and indigenous cultures. Like this is an alien separation that's been imposed on boys and girls sports. So we need to reimagine that. Uh, in a socialist society. Obviously, no racist mascots in a socialist society. Is that a given? I think that's a given. And you know what, no public funding for stadiums. And if there is public funding, that means that every dollar we put in is a dollar that goes and actually funds our schools, that funds our libraries, that repairs our bridges. So it doesn't become this big sucking sound that goes into the pockets of plutocrats. But, because, but when you actually engage with sports, you're actually helping build the infrastructure and capacity of a society. Because to me, that's what a world worth living in is all about. The ability where we're free to work, where we're free to play, where we're free to love, and our ability to do something successfully is not how we define ourselves, but our ability to actually capture joy is how we measure our lives. Thank you.
Boom, we are back on the Edge of Sports podcast. Surprise! I said we weren't going to do Jake's Takes, but guess what? We're doing Jake's Takes. How could we not? Week one of the NFL season. Do I have a movie coming out criticizing the NFL repeatedly called Behind the Shield? Yes, I do. Am I still going to do picks? Yes, I am. Is it because I think it keeps my relationship with my son strong? Not really. We have a good relationship. But it's a fun thing for us to do together. So, hello, Jacob. How are you? I'm good. How are you? A little louder, boy. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's week one of Jake's Takes. And I'm so excited we're back doing this. Mm-hmm. Don't say, mm-hmm. You say, yes, indeed. You use words. Don't yes, worry. Indeed. I'll cut all this out. Yes, indeed. All right. So, game one, I'm asking for picks from each game from you. We're going to keep track all year how you do so the first game is actually we're recording this on a wednesday it's tomorrow at 8 20 buffalo bills who many are favoring to win the super bowl versus last year's super bowl champions the los angeles don't call them st louis rams who do you like buddy bills or rams i like the rams here in this game i like the rams because i mean they they won the super bowl last year That, that that's not the reason i just feel like you know at home i think Matt Stafford's going to go out there and do what he does best. I think he's going to do well, prime time in the clutch, you know. I, I feel like, yeah. Nice. I think I agree with you. I think the Bills are overvalued and the Rams are undervalued, and we're going to see that tomorrow. I didn't say the Bills are overvalued, but I do think that the Rams are going to win. Well, then you think the Rams must be undervalued. Yeah. All right. Glad we could work that out. All right. You got to chuckle a little bit. Yeah. All right. I know. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, Jake. Oh, for those out there listening, Jacob is doing this sick. So he's effectively playing hurt. And so very much appreciate that. Certainly Steelers Bengals. Who do you uh, like? I like the Bengals in this game specifically because I mean, the, the Steelers, they're, they're going out there with Mr. Trubisky. Uh, I don't know if I trust that against uh, improved I think an improved Bengals defense and also improved Bengals O-line, just an improved Bengals team in general against a team with, you know, a pretty average wide receivers and a, and a very above average running back, but, and, and, and a really solid defense. But, I mean, quarterback, that's going to be the most position at the end of the day. And the Bengals, Bengals certainly beat them out in that, and I think the Bengals will win at home. Yeah, Joe Burrow versus Mitch Trubisky and the fact that it's in Cincy makes you want to lead towards the Bungles. But I also look at Mike Tomlin versus Zach Taylor, and I'm going with the Steelers. So our first disagreement. Yeah. He. Um, next one, 49ers in Chicago playing the Bears. Who do you like? I like the 49ers in this game because, I mean, this is going to be – it's it's a little bit of a tricky one because I think Trey Lance is starting. I, yes. I I'm ninety nine percent sure he is. Oh he is. And yeah, and this is gonna be his first uh, game starting, and you know he's he's pretty much new to this. I mean he had a whole year backing up Jimmy Garoppolo, so hopefully hopefully that'll be in play. And I I feel like the Forty ers they made it to the NFC Championship last year. Their defense is very above average. They have a nice offensive line leading the way with Trent Williams. They have a, I mean, they have, of course, they have Debo Samuel, who's 
one of the most elusive, just dynamic wide receivers in the league. And I just think the Bears roster, they've just declined a lot, especially. Yeah, what's up? I mean, I just keep thinking, buddy, that the Bears are going to end 5-12 and 12 or something no, like they're, that. No, they're, they're, they're probably going to be worse. Really? I think they'll go like 4-13 and 13 maybe. Wow. And they are bad. But this seems like a trap game a little bit, doesn't it? No. 49ers going to Chicago? No, I'm trying to talk myself into the Bears. I can't do it. 49ers. No. Eagles in Detroit playing the Hard Knock Lions. Who do you like? You know, the Lions, they really improved this offseason. Yes. And, you know, who, who doesn't love the Lions? But the, the Eagles probably improved more. I mean, they got A.J. Brown in that trade on draft night. They got um, James Bradbury for New York, and he had a down year last year, but he's still James Bradbury, a pro bowler, James Bradbury. Was he an all, I don't think he was an all-pro, but then I think the Eagles, you know, they are definitely a playoff contender. I think they, they, they have a ceiling of maybe, like, NFC Championship. I feel like that's a little bit crazy. I think they'll probably be eliminated in, like, the wild card, but I think they – they have eleven and six, maybe this is okay. That's actually I was gonna say twelve and five, but I think that's a stretch. I think they have an eleven and six ceiling. Honestly, mm-hmm. I think they'll probably go ten and seven. I think they're a pretty good team. I agree I think with they're you. They're gonna beat the Lions at home. Uh, Lions are at home, so the Eagles would beat them going to Detroit. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is a classic trap game. I think Detroit wins high on emotion, mm-hmm. even though the Eagles. I agree with everything you just said. You know, always week one, there's an upset, and you think that team's going to be good, but they're not. Yeah. That, to me, is Detroit-Philadelphia. Okay, I can see that. Oh, I love picking this game. Patriots in Miami playing the Dolphins. Who do you like? Well, the the Patriots, I mean, they are slowly becoming, it's crazy to say, the worst team in that division. Mm -hmm. It's really crazy to say. And I feel like Mac Jones, like, he's just – Seems like your average quarterback. I don't see that much potential in him, to oh, be completely honest. So average. I mean, I really don't see that much potential. And then everybody, I feel like their entire roster is just kind of like middle of the pack. While, while this uh, Miami Dolphins team, you know, they just got the fastest receiver in the league, a top five receiver in Tyree Kill. And I think that the Dolphins will show out and show up, and they will show the world why, why they should not have been doubting them. And the game is in Miami. Yeah, it's in Miami. And this Patriots roster is booty. Yeah. It's not just about Mac Jones. It's a yeah. lot of pieces they're missing. A lot of. All right, this one's interesting. Cleveland Browns go to Carolina to face Dave Baker Mayfield. No, Cleveland Browns go to Carolina to face Baker Mayfield and the Panthers. Who do you like? You know, this is kind of it's it's a hard game. To, it's a hard game to pick because. Baker, he's, he's, he's heading back. Well, he isn't going to Cleveland, but he, he's facing a team that he's quite familiar with. And, you know, it's it, this is kind of a toss-up because obviously – So tough. I'm having a tough time Obviously, with this. the Browns are a better team, but, I mean, with the, with the revenge game in hand, it, it's kind of rough. You know, I'm a Ravens fan. So, I'm trying to keep the bias out of the way, and I'll say the Browns. Wow, I've got Carolina. I mean, like Jacoby, ah, Jacoby Brissett, though. That's actually rough. Baker Jacoby is, is not a good quarterback. I keep going back to Baker's stats last year before and after his shoulder injury. Yeah. And he was looking good, and he would had a really good year yeah, the year before I that. Carolina. I mean, always Christian McCaffrey. His first, like, two games are going to be great, and then he gets – 
I'm praying to God he doesn't get injured, but hey, let's enjoy yeah. him while we can. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. So I think he's gonna really show out. I think Baker's gonna love having a pass catching running back because he didn't really have. I mean, wait a minute, back. are you switching your pick? Yeah, I am. Ah, interesting. Am. Yeah, yeah, I think the Panthers are gonna win. I don't think you sw- you switched one pick all last year. I think I did mid conversation. Oh, I, I most definitely did. All right, I, there are hundreds of games. I'm going in the archive. All right, shoot. Indianapolis Colts travel to Houston to play the woe-be-gone Texans. Who do you like? This is not that hard of a game to pick. I mean, uh, Colts have a new quarterback in Matt Ryan. I mean, we'll see how he meshes out there, but I think he'll be pretty good in that offense with Jonathan Taylor, Michael Pittman. I really like Michael Pittman. Um, and the Texans, I mean, they are just a, they are a train wreck. I Who's mean, their quarterback? Davis Mills. Oh, dear God. And they have uh, a new running back. Um Damian Pierce, he was just named the starter for them. Uh, over, I mean, the competition wasn't that crazy. I mean, it was Rex Burkhead. But all right, yeah. Why are we talking about this game? <laughs> all right, yeah. Matt, this, Matt Ryan's still a top uh, ten, top okay, fifteen, top fifteen. Uh, top fifteen might also be kind of crazy. Uh, I think he's like in that fourteen to seventeen range. Okay. Uh, but yeah, the Colts pretty easy. Matt Ryan could also have a big sort of revival season, being in a new place. Yeah. I think it's. Colts are being slept on a little bit yeah. to me. But the AFC is so stacked. Yeah. I don't think you can take them seriously for the Super Bowl. But yeah. they're, they're, if they were in the NFC, I'd be like, let's talk Super Bowl about the Colts. Seriously. Saints travel to Atlanta to play the Falcons. One of the biggest rivalries, by the way, in the entire NFL. Of course. You know, people look forward to this game every year. But it, I don't think it'll be too close with this Falcons roster. I mean, they are bad. That receiving unit... Besides Drake London, it's a bunch of it's a bunch of nobodies. I mean, there's uh, that one guy I cannot pronounce his name. His initials are OZ. It's um, I'm not even gonna. Let's try. just call him Oz. Out, out of respect, I'm not gonna try. I like that. That out of respect thing, um, Jacob. You're a good kid. Uh, Marcus Mariota, Why? Desmond Ritter is Ex- gonna be starting. Explain that I to think, me. I think Drake London is gonna have an insane season. You'll see that later in my award picks. It's a little sneak peek. Ooh. But uh and also I think the Saints Jameis Winston's gonna go crazy. Another sneak peek. Ooh. I'm I'm gonna pick the Saints. Absolutely. Uh Jaguars travel to Washington to play the Commanders. Um that's tougher than it seems. Oh, it's not tough for me. Give me Trevor Lawrence having a huge second year. Uh they now have a real professional coach, not Urban Meyer. Yeah. Uh, Doug Peterson, Super Bowl winning coach. Oh God, don't don't don't. Doug Peterson is awful. I mean, he's at least say, he's at say, least a professional NFL coach. Yeah, but yeah, he's gonna unlike be better Urban, than Urban Meyer. Okay, I'm not saying he's gonna be worse than Urban Meyer because no coach will be worse than Urban Meyer, but he's not gonna be a good coach. I don't think. I mean, I think their ceiling for them is maybe six and eleven if they get lucky. Mm. Um, and also this Commanders team, I I like Carson Wentz. I don't know if. He's going to be that good there. We're going to see how it plays out. Uh, of course, uh, the running back, uh, Brian Robinson, he got shot. Yes. Uh, so Very sad. Praise up to him. He's, he's going to be okay. But they they, they will still have uh, Antonio Gibson and uh, Jimmy Who I McKissick, love. who's a great receiving back. And he signed with the Bills, if you remember. Ah. And then he backed out to stay with this team. So we'll, we'll see how that combo does. It certainly didn't do well for my fantasy team. Because J.D. McKissick kept taking points from Antonio Gibson. We're not going to talk about that, though. Uh, Give me the Jaguars in this game. 
That sounds good to me. Um, all right, the last 1 o'clock game, the one I've been waiting for, the, our Baltimore Ravens traveling to the swamps of Jersey to play the New York Jets. Who do you like? You know, I can't believe you didn't mention about Joe Flacco and his return. Let's talk about it. His return to face the Baltimore Ravens, of course, not at, at the bank, but... Not in it, Baltimore it, is what be, Jacob means when he says not at the bank. It's, yeah, because M&T Bank, that's their stadium. And, you know, there's definitely going to be some waterworks. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this game is such a trap game for the Ravens because, you know, Joe Flacco and all the emotion there. Yeah, um, I, I definitely will pick the Ravens, even though I do like that uh, Jets team. I really like uh, Bruce Hall. I really like Garrett Wilson. Their defense has definitely improved, so... I think I think they're they're not a bad team anymore. They're not losing like losing Mecky Beckton. Yeah, losing losing a potential all, all pro, pro left tackle in the future would be is going to be really rough for them. But I still think they have a ceiling of like eight and nine, which is kind of crazy to say for the New York Jets. Yeah, for them that's I'm, a huge year. I'm still year. taking the, the Ravens up. All right, four twenty five tough game. Packers go to Minnesota. Mm-hmm. For week one, one of the big rivalries in the league. You know what uh, Aaron Rodgers likes to say that he owns these teams in the NFC North. Yeah. Is he going to own this game? Oh heck yeah, he will. Uh, the Vikings. I mean, it, it happened last year, if you remember. I think it was week one where just Aaron Rodgers totally destroyed the. Uh, the Minnesota Vikings, and I think it'll happen again this year. Of course, there's no, uh, there's no dominant number one. There's no more Devontae Adams, but you know, I think Christian Wa- uh, Christian Watson, I think his name is. I think he's it's a second round pick. Yep. I think he's gonna do pretty well there. Uh, they signed Sammy Watkins. They still have a uh, Marquez Valdez. Do they? I think. Uh yeah, they still have Marquez Valdez Scanlon. Uh, I might have to check, but I I think he's still on that team. Uh, I am going to pick the, the Green Bay Packers. Nice. Um, I'm picking the Vikings. Um, I feel like Marquez. He's on Raiders, right? Oh, no, he's on the Chiefs now. Oh, okay. shut my mouth. We're going to edit all that out. We're not yeah, we will. Out. We're editing out everything that's to do with Marquez. Scantlin. Can't, I can't even say his name. It's called good. Uh, the New Jersey Giants traveling to Tennessee to play the Titans. Do we even need to talk about this? Uh, no. Maybe we do. Do we? No. God, no. Titans are going to spank them, aren't they? Yes, they are. Yeah. Maybe a Titans win. Unless Saquon uh, goes nutso, which a lot of people are predicting, and, including and, you. And Ray's right here. Uh, another sneak peek. Sneak peek. And I think uh, Titans with Derrick Henry back uh, this year, hopefully for the full season, will go crazy. Mm. Raiders traveling to what should be San Diego to play mm. the Chargers. You know, these, these are great games. Can I just make a comment? Yeah. These are and, and, great and there, games. Are, there are two, you know, there are three more. Insi- these are probably the, the three best games of the week that we're going to say next, besides the, the uh, four Bills best. Rams. Bills Rams. I'm talking about the next three. Still this two. Oh. And this is a revenge game. This is a revenge game from last year, if you remember. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you remember that uh, week 18 game. Mm hmm. Raiders Chargers 27-24 I think the score was I hope I'm not wrong about that. And there was some crazy stuff with a field goal at yeah, the end. Yeah, cuz it was like, oh, if they tie then they both make it. 
and then yeah, there was that question of should the Raiders just tie so both teams. If the Chargers just and it looked like they were going to do that, and then the Chargers did something like blitz, and it pissed the Raiders off. There was something weird like that. It was okay, so the Chargers were on offense, and then it was like third down or something, and they could have just like been conservative, take the field goal, and they both make the playoffs, or they uh, go for a touchdown, and then I think they converted or something, and then they ended up scoring the touchdown and winning, beating the Raiders, and. Bumming them out, but we're talking about this game. Not wait the a past. minute, that's not what happened. The Raiders won that game and got into the playoffs. Oh wait, that week Shoot, eighteen you're game. Right. Okay, I don't know what's. Going remember how? Out. Remember Justin Herbert's sad face? Yeah, I remember. Wait, did the Raiders make the playoffs? Yeah. What they face? Some team that whooped their ass early. Okay, I remember definitely that the Chargers did not make the playoffs. No. Now that I remember, I, they definitely didn't. We're not. To, let's just edit. Let's just edit. So Raiders Chargers, who do you like, buddy? You know this is gonna be a good game. You know, great game. Last year, of course, week eighteen, there was that whole insane game. Um, let's not discuss that okay. <laughs> and just move on to the game. Who do you like? Okay, I, I think I'll take the, the Chargers at home. I think they will end up splitting uh, the series for the season. Hmm. But um, I think at home, Brandon Staley, Justin Herbert, Keenan Allen, all those studs on offense as well. And then Joey Bosa, best safety in the game, Derwin James. I really do like that team this year. And I think that the Chargers will win. Yeah, I like the Chargers with Devontae Adams, the new receiver of the Raiders, having a monster game. But a wide receiver is not enough to turn an entire game. Raiders defense is not good enough. No. Stop that Chargers offense. No, Justin Herbert's going to throw for like a million yards. Yeah. Maybe even a trillion. All right. All right. Chiefs go to Arizona to play the Cardinals. Is Marquise Brown playing? Uh, I don't know. But either way, I'm taking these Chiefs. Sorry. Who do you like? Yeah, I, I. I'm going to take the Chiefs as well, whether he was playing or not, but it would impact it a little bit. I'm going to assume that he is, and I'm still going to say the Chiefs. You know, this is Patrick Mahomes we're talking about. Tyreek Hill or not, they still have a bunch of really good weapons on offense. Can I just add that this is a proud, uh, profoundly disrespected, chip-on-his-shoulder version of Patrick Mahomes? Yeah, like, oh, will he succeed without the speed dealer? And Tyreek, and also, like, the way he lost in the playoffs to the Bengals, choking up yeah. a huge lead. And then the whole Tyreek Hill thing about, like, Tyreek Hill saying, oh, Tua's a much better quarterback or something okay, like that. he didn't that. say that. He said that uh, he was more accurate, I think mm. that's what he said. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I am going to pick the Chiefs. All right. Uh, two more games. Uh, Bucks cowboys I remember Brady, like, yeah. missed a ton of camp, and he's yeah. having marital troubles. Well, I don't think. All right, yeah. That's not a small thing, buddy. You're not married. I can tell you. Problems with your spouse, a.k.a. your mom, it can mess up your whole thing. All right, well. It's a TMI. Uh, so we're talking about a football game here. All right. Uh, I, I'm still going to pick the Buccaneers. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're the much better team. I ain't betting against no Tom Brady. Yeah, I'm not betting against Tom Brady with a newly added Julio Jones plus Mike Evans and plus Godwin. And, and Todd Bowles uh, coaching. Yeah. Who I think is super underrated, was very good for a horrible Jets team as a yeah. head coach. Um, people did not appreciate that he actually made the Jets worth watching. Um, Broncos traveling to Seattle for the Seahawks. Russell Wilson going to Seattle.
All right, so we got uh, one more game to talk about Monday night. Uh, Denver Broncos traveling to Seattle for the Seahawks. Remember earlier we talked about uh, Baker Mayfield playing his former team, the Browns, but the Browns were going to Carolina. This is Russell Wilson going to Seattle, yeah, and know. we know people in Seattle. I can promise you they will be crying yeah, during this game. It's going to be a good old-fashioned spanking. The Broncos <sighs> are going to brutally defeat Geno Smith and the Seahawks. Brutally. You, you are correct, sir. Yeah, this it's is going to be close. like 42 to 7. Oh, God, something like that. Something horrifying. Yeah. All right. Did I do scores last year? No. We never did scores. Okay. You're, just t- you're so tired. Why don't we ever do scores? All right, what am I going to right now? I'm going to... Now we're doing awards. Now, it's week one of the NFL season, and before the first week, there's a tradition on Jake's Takes where we do awards. The way we do awards on this program is first we talk about who we think the MVP or Offensive Player of the Year is going to be, and then we say who our dark horse is going to be, who a surprise winner could be. So let's start with MVP. Who do you got, Jake? Um, I have Joshua Allen winning MVP of the of the I almost said Buffalo Bills. Uh, Buffalo Bills. I think that he's <laughs> gonna have an amazing year. I mean, I think this is very consensus. I think this is very basic, but I, I just don't really care. You know, I think I'm right. That's I think why. you know what's funny is that people are so stoked for Josh Allen's year that people to me are ignoring the fact that Aaron Rodgers has won the last two MVPs. Yeah, I think. So I got Aaron Rodgers as my favorite. Okay. Yeah, I, I think Aaron Rodgers is a very solid pick. I feel like that he, I mean, he's a very safe pick, but I also feel like it's a good pick. Yeah. Thank you, because it's it's a good pick because it's uh, is it safe? Man, eh, maybe. All right, who's your dark horse MVP? Uh, my dark horse MVP is going to be Jameis Winston. Okay, um, why is that? Earlier in those picks, uh, he we all know he's going to throw for. Crap for the yards. Hurrying, uh, before. Okay, wait, wait a second. We all know that he's going to throw for a ton of yards. He's going to get a bunch of touchdowns. It's just if he keeps those interceptions low, I feel like he could really have a great year with uh, Michael Thomas and uh, and Chris Olave to throw to. I think he's going to be great. Wow. Great dark horse. My dark horse was going to be Lamar Jackson. But now I think that's disrespectful because he's a former MVP who threw 38 touchdowns in a season. 36. 36. Still disrespectful mm-hmm. to call him a dark horse. So I'm actually going with an interesting dark horse, Matt Ryan, who I could see throwing for 5,000 yards on this Colts team. Uh, and Jonathan Taylor out of the backfield provides great balance and protection for Ryan, the likes of which he's, he never had in Atlanta. The closest he had was uh, a young Devontae Freeman, honestly. I mean, he never had good runners. To have Jonathan Taylor in his, my God, third year, that's super prime for a running yeah. back. I love Matt Ryan for yeah. this pick. He's my dark horse. I, honestly, I really do love that pick. The one Thank you. thing I have to disagree with you on was saying that he never had any good running backs. I feel like you're really being disrespectful to Devontae Freeman. Proud Devontae I Freeman. just said Devontae Freeman. Yes, I know, but you're disrespecting him by saying that he... I feel like you're a little bit undermining him. Is that a good word? It is, but you know what's funny right now is you're looking up Devontae Freeman for evidence, 
And I have a feeling you're not finding it. No. <laughs> okay. You're like sneaking yeah. the look. What, what, it is probably at 2,000 uh, plus yard seasons and uh, 11 touchdowns on good yards per attempt to use during the playoffs. So you can go leave. I shan't. Okay. Offensive player of the year. Who do you like? Offensive player of the year. I just have to go back after checking Devontae Freeman's stats. Um, speaking of Matt Ryan, I think the other player in that backfield, Jonathan Taylor, will do astoundingly good this year. Is that a good term for it? It's a great, yeah, it's a great use of the word astoundingly. He's going to be unreal. I mean, he is an amazing player, and I think he will just dominate everyone in his way. Now, uh, I like Nick Chubb, Cleveland Browns. Probably going to have a huge breakout, smaller role for Kareem Hunt, who he shared carries with. I'm not even sure if Kareem Hunt's on the team. Uh, yeah, he is. All right. Well, either way, who's your dark horse? Uh, my dark horse offensive player of the year is going to be Saquon Barkley. I feel like it's a little bit rude to call it a dark horse, but, I mean, he is coming off of an injured season. So, I think it's okay. And he has been – and lighting it up in training camp, as anybody, as everybody's seen if you're on social media. And I think he'll just do unreal, carrying that offense on his back. I really hope he doesn't get injured because he's such a fun player. He is. Uh, I'm going Kirk Cousins. Talk about a dark horse. I mean. You see, you had three picks, which I genuinely like three in a row, which is so rare. And then you just totally ruined that with, my least favorite quarterback, and honestly, yeah, my least favorite quarterback in the league. But I really think that he's just like not that good. I had three good picks you liked in a row. It was really just yeah. one. No, uh, Matt Ryan. Yeah. Aaron Rodgers. I didn't really like Nick Chubb that much, actually. So. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, I liked your two MVP picks. So. No big deal. All right, D- defensive player of the year. Who do you have? I have uh, Aaron Donald. I do too. As my defensive player of the year. I think he's just going to dominate. You know, it's Aaron Donald. It's Aaron Donald. I don't think TJ Watt will win it. I feel like Miles Garrett. I really do like him. I feel like he's a little bit overrated. I do too. I don't know. I feel like he's a little bit overrated. I do too. I, I think Aaron Donald's going to win it. All right. Who's your dark horse? I also have Aaron Donald, obviously. Who's your dark horse? Um, my dark horse is uh, Bradley Chubb. I really hope that he stays. Interesting. Uh, Got to be healthy. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. I really hope he stays healthy because he's really one of the most talented defensive ends. The most talented outside linebackers uh, in the league. Well, I'll tell you, Jake, I was going to say Derwin James for my dark horse, but that felt a little. Yes. Like, safeties don't really win this award. Ed Reed won it once, and he's only like. A little bit disrespectful. To call him a dark horse, too. So, my dark horse, look, when people do these awards, they love counting stats. Uh huh. And I learned today that this player played all of last year with a shoulder brace. Odafe Owe for the Baltimore Ravens. Next award. Get this biased man out of my It's not face. bias. It's not bias. Coach of the year. Who do you like? Coach of the year? Oh, okay. Uh, Coach of the year, I have uh, Sean McDermott. Um, okay. The Bills are going to be amazing this year, especially in the regular season. We'll see in the playoffs. It'll be great. They are going to be great. All right. Uh, my coach of the year is Matt LaFleur of the Packers. I think the Packers are going to go like 15-2. and two. Well, That's no chance. I think I even, you know, I think they're just going to dominate and he'll 
Who's your dark horse coach of the year? Mine's gonna shock you. I saw it. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> uh, my dark horse coach of the year is uh, Dennis Allen of the Saints. Uh, like I said, if Jameis succeeds, I think the entire team will succeed because it's a great they, pick. They have every, they have everything. It's just quarterback has kind of always been a struggle for them since uh, since uh, Drew left his prime, and I think that they're going to be good this year. All right, my dark horse is Kevin Stefanski of the Cleveland Browns. Let me just take you on a I little journey. Up in my mouth. Let me just take you on a journey, okay? The Browns are average. They're six and five, seven and four, decent. Jacoby Brissett. Listen, and he's done it with Jacoby Brissett. It's time Jacoby for let me let me explain. Brissett. It's time for Deshaun Watson to come back. And Didn't he have like a twelve game suspension. Yes. So they're let's call them seven and five. Um, they're not going to have a winning record with Jacoby Brissett. Do you realize this? This is a talented team. Let me explain something though. Let me just tell you what's going to happen. In my mouth again. Can I just tell you what's going to happen? What? Ste- Kevin Stefanski will not make Deshaun Watson the starter in week 12 because he'll say he's too much of an embarrassment to the city of Cleveland, and Jacoby Brissett has earned the right to finish the year, and people will have so much respect for that boss move, he's going to get coach of the year. I wish we were on camera so people could see my face right now. Yeah, you're smiling just people, so people can They know. gave this guy 230 mil guaranteed to let Jacoby Brissett start over him? Just for this year to send a message to the league. I wish this was a family-friendly podcast. Oh, it is a family-friendly podcast. Don't you forget it. Offensive Rookie of the Year. Who do you like? Uh, I like Drake London. I think he's the sole good player in that offense. I think he's going to do great. Yeah. I'm talking about like as weapons to pass to. Ooh, I like, I, I like. Don't really have any running backs either. I, don't think. I like second round pick Christian Watson, on theory that uh, this guy just loves the Packers this year, huh? Yeah, and the theory that Aaron Rodgers has to throw to somebody. Okay, sure. Who's your dark horse? Uh, Oroy. Yes. Dark horse Oroy is Christian Watson. All right. Is a second round pick right. on the Packers really a dark horse? No. Okay. Uh, well, okay. Uh, my dark horse overall is a Sky Moore of the Chiefs. Oh, great pick. Uh, I, I, so you, I like him a lot. Wish I'd done that. I like him a lot, and I think he's going to do well in the Chiefs in a Tyreek Hill-less offense. Of course, they still have uh, Travis Kelsey, and they have uh, Juju now, McCall Hardman, and then they have Sky Moore, who I think is going to do great. All right, now bear with me with my dark horse, okay? We already know that this player is going to get reps and he's going to get catches. Let's see who it is. Isaiah Likely, tight end, Baltimore Ravens. I said this earlier. Can I get this biased guy out of my face? It's not bias. Defensive biased. rookie of the year. Who do you have? Uh, speaking of biased, I have uh, Kyle Hamilton. Oh, my God. It won't be <laughs> Kyle Hamilton. It will be Kyle He's Hamilton. not even starting. He had a crap camp. He is starting. He's going to be great. And I made this list uh, like a month ago. And I like him. And he's going to be great. And he's going to get like five. I'm so disgusted. I wish the audience could see my face right now. <laughs> see, I'm just like you. All right. Are you ready? My D-Roy is uh, Hutchinson. It's not a bad pick at all. It's a a safe pick. Aiden Hutchinson, easy pick. He's going to get a ton of snaps. 
And judging on the preseason, he's kind of a beast. So Aiden Hutchinson, Lion, should have been the number one overall pick. Who's your D-Roy, uh, Dark Horse? Uh, I don't know how Dark Horse this is, but uh, I'm doing a Jaquan Briscoe. Easy, dog. Who is that? Who's your dark horse, D-Roy? Okay, start over D-Roy. Here I'm my dark horse. Now, who is your dark horse defensive rookie of the year? Um, okay. Mine, my dark horse, D-Roy, is going to be Jaquan Brisker, safety for the Chicago Bears. You could say that he's not a dark horse, but... I think he's a dark horse, and I think he's going to be really good this year in a, on a bad team. Okay, I like George Karlaftis. I don't think that's a dark horse at all. Really? No. All right. Well, no one's talking about him. Lots of people are talking about him. Well, no one I talk to. And who do you like in the Super Bowl? George Karlaftis, by the way, plays for the Chiefs. He's an edge. Did you not make a comeback player of the year? Oh, of course I made a comeback player of the year. Mine is absolutely Baker Mayfield. Oh, God. I just threw up again. Who's yours? Uh, mine is uh, Derek Henry. Okay. And who's your dark horse comeback player of the year? Mine is a guy by the name. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I know mine. My dark horse. You want to say ours at the same time and see if we both have the same one? Mine is J.K. J.K. Dobbins. No, mine's Ja'Kalen Dobbins. Oh, Ja'Kalen Dobbins? Yeah. Either way, we're Dobbins friends. And who do you like in the Super Bowl? I like Ravens-Rams and the Ravens win. I like Ravens-Packers, Ravens win. Nice. Yeah. That means the Ravens are going to win. All right, everybody. That's all we have this week for Jake's Takes. Jake, I know you're a little under the weather, but do you have anything else you want to say to the people? Uh, I'm back. He's back, baby, with a vengeance. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. I uh, hope you all dug it. Next week, we're going to be back with some serious Jake's Takes, talking about week one of the NFL season. Please tune in for that. But for now, I'll just say thank you to my producer, David Tigaboo. Thank you to the folks at Socialism22. Thank you to the folks at WeAreMany.org. We are out of here. Peace.